So, first book of Samuel, chapter 16, beginning at the first verse. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well, and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem, who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well, and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then...
Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor-bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Steve, thank you very much. Please keep your Bibles open there. We'll be looking at that in a moment. Let's just bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, thank you very much that we can open the Bible week by week and uh, see your word. And we need your help this morning that we can understand this passage and we pray that you would help us to do that and to be obedient to its truth. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, look down there at the uh, end of verse 7. As uh, Matt gave it to us, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The uh, first thing I've got in my notes here is what does that mean? Well, we've had a very helpful beginning this morning because uh, Matt has been instructing us. I suppose we can say in our culture today that when we're talking about the things of the heart, we're talking about our emotions, love, romance, and things like that. When I was young in the myths of the last century, two young people very much in love walking in the countryside, they might carve a heart on a tree and add their initials to seal their love. Now, I don't know what would happen in um, Samuel's day, uh, but that certainly wouldn't happen to you two young people if they carved anything on a tree to speak of their love. Surprisingly, it would be a picture of their bowels or their intestines because for the people of the Bible, that's where the emotions lay down in the tongue. The older ones of you will remember the old translation that speaks about bowels of mercy. That's where mercy lies. When Jesus came to this earth, they had to invent a new word to describe his love and his concern for people and things. And they invented the word compassion. It didn't exist before the time of Jesus. In the Greek language of the New Testament, it's splanknidzesai. It's a, it's a pain in the splanknidzesai. It's a pain in the gut. Compassion is something that hits you deep in the, the stomach. For modern man, the brain is the seat of consciousness, thought, actions, the will. And what modern man thought of the 
thinks about the functions of the brain, Bible man thinks about the functions of the heart. So when people in Bible times talk about their heart, they're talking about their actions, their will, their thought, their self-consciousness. So when it says in the Bible that God looks on the heart, what he's doing there is to look at our actions and our thought and our will. Let me just remind you of the scene for the moment. Samuel's been sent to anoint one of Jesse's king's sons as the king over Israel. Samuel's reluctant, but he eventually does that. And you remember, they come before uh, Samuel one by one. The first one is Eliab. Samuel thinks that's the one, but God says no. They all pass before Samuel. At the end, Samuel said, well, aren't there any more? And Jesse said, well, there's little David up on the hills, but he's just a shepherd. And uh, David has to be brought, and of course he's selected, because spiritually uh, he's in tune with God. Internally he's motivated by God. His conscious self, his thought, his actions, his will is in line with God and that makes him the right sort of man for God to have as his servant as a king now you can see it's quite a long passage that we have before us this morning but I wonder if you can see like me that the passage cries out that we should contrast these two men Saul and David Nowhere are we specifically told what God saw in David, just as we're nowhere told specifically what he couldn't see in Saul. We've got to work that out for ourselves. Uh, I can hear you saying that, well, we at this stage don't know very much about David. He doesn't really appear to 1 Samuel 16. That is true, but there is another way that we can look at David. So let's begin with Saul. The passage begins with Saul, really Saul's redemption. So here's my first heading. The sad picture of a man in spiritual decline. We've been really looking at 1 Samuel since last May, and we've noticed quite a few things about him, and let me remind you of some of them. From a a spiritual, physical point of view, He's quite promising. This is 1 Samuel 9 and verse 2. Kish had a son named Saul, an impressive young man, without equal among the Israelites, uh, a head taller than all the others. Can you see, he's a marvelous sort of person to be a king. Imagine him on a horse guards parade in uniform at the trooping of the color. He's the right sort of man. A very promising start physically. And then we move on and he's got an even better start spiritually. This is 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 9. God changed Saul's heart. That's a definition of conversion. That's what conversion is. God changing our heart. Same verse. The spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. That's a a picture of spirit filling. We look to that 
in quite detail when we were looking at the book of Judges a little while ago. We saw Gideon and Samson. They were spirit-filled men. We see this in the Old Testament. God spirit-fills men and women for particular ministries. That phrase, spirit-filling, as we have it here, it's the ordinary Hebrew expression for putting on a garment. Here's my, one of my gloves. They're really like Gideon or Samson or any of these great leaders before God put them on. And of course, once God puts them on, they have the energy for various ministries. So, a very promising start physically, an even better start spiritually. He's converted, he's spirit-filled, and then the decline begins. 1 Samuel 13, uh, he's told to go to Gilgal with all his troops and to wait there for Samuel to come and make some offerings. David goes with his troops to Gilgal. After about a week, they're terribly bored and start to slip away one at a time. So David says, bring me the offerings. Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, and I'll offer them before the troops go away. And he's just finishing offering them when Samuel turns up and rebukes him for acting independently. Then about three weeks ago, we saw with David's ministry that Saul was commanded to go and get rid of the Amalekites totally to destroy them and all their animals, everything. And when Samuel turns up after that, it's as though he's saying to Saul, how did it go? And Saul says, well, I've carried out your orders in detail. Samuel says, that's why I'm interested. Why can I hear sheep bleating and cattle lowing? He's been disobedient. Uh, A sad picture of a man in spiritual decline. Promising start physically, better start spiritually. And then the decline, he acts independently and he disobeys. Now we come to today's chapter of the downward trend continues. Look at verse 14. There you see Saul running on empty. Verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. You probably discovered the hard way in the physical world that you can't run on empty. If you run out of petrol, your car stops. That's a a rule in the physical world. But in the spiritual world, that's not true. You can run on empty. That's what Saul is doing here. And lots of people try to do that in the church today. And it creates a lot of problems. Look at the verse again. Saul, the spirit of the Lord, had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So straight away he's... uh, affected by psychological problems. Some people look at that first, say the spirit of the Lord, uh, an evil spirit from the Lord, and they think straight away of a dynamic spirit. Let me say two things quite quickly. One, what Saul appears to be suffering from here bears no resemblance 
has none of the characteristics of uh, spirit, demon possession, spirit possession that we have in the Bible. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, the word evil there in verse 14 can be translated bad or deteriorating. And that's really the way that the scholars down the years have translated that. I don't think it, the writer is referring to demon possession. He's talking about a psychological breakdown and a complete emotional collapse in Saul's life. If a modern psychologist had Saul on his couch, he would diagnose melancholia, paranoia, emotional instability, homicidal tendencies, and irrational behavior. It's a complete psychological collapse. Later in life, we know that Saul dabbled with the occult. We don't know whether he's doing that here or not. But we need to realize that emotional problems, psychological disturbance can be a demonstration of something that is wrong spiritually. Let me say two things again very quickly. Don't attribute all psychological problems and irrational behavior to spiritual causes and don't attribute all emotional problems and irrational behavior to natural causes. The Bible is quite clear. If you disobey God and you harden your heart and you go on hardening your heart, you're not going to be emotionally, spiritually or psychologically unscathed. So a sad picture of a man in spiritual decline. The final act of heart hardening is this disturbed mind. And before you get totally discouraged by Saul, I think we've got to quickly turn to, to David and look at him. So here's my second heading. A delightful picture of a man in spiritual ascendancy. Look down at verse 15. Yes, it's still speaking about Saul, but it gives us a clue how we can look at David. Saul's attendants are wondering how they can help him. And they think that music might be the salve for his troubled mind. And again, we know that music can soothe, tranquilize those that have psychological problems. And that's another thing that makes people point to a psychological disturbance in Saul's life here. Now, of course, we don't know the music that David played Saul to quiet his mind. Most people presume it's the psalms that he's beginning to write. And we're going to look at, quickly, three of them to get a picture of how uh, David is reacting. But first of all, look down at verse 13. That's a very important verse in looking at David. From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. It's the same picture that we have from Judges. God puts on David, which gives him the power and the authority for his ministry. Let's just quickly look at uh, three psalms so we can get some 
understanding of the spiritual ascendancy of David. First of all, Psalm 61. Don't bother to turn it up, I'll just read it to you. Perhaps the opening few verses. Hear my cry, O my God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. For you have heard my vows, O God. You have given me the heritage of one who fears your name. The old version there and verse 2 has, My heart is overwhelmed. And that's the thing that I want you to see here. David's heart, his will, his thought, his actions are overwhelmed clearly with the greatness of his God. That's the first thing. Secondly, looking at Psalm 40 and verse 8, David says, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Earlier in that psalm, David says, Sacrifices and offerings you do not desire, but your ears, but my ears you have pierced. I love that. The Hebrew literally says there, My ears you have dug out for me. God swings his pickaxe, digs open the ears in our blockheads of granite, so we can hear his word. Eugene Peterson in his modern translation, the message translates that verse, you opened my ears so that I can listen to your word. I find there are lots of God's people today who don't find the Bible attractive to read. And it always reminds me of something I saw in Jamaica a few years ago when I was there to speak at a couple of Keswicks. Uh, I was shown to see the family of a man who had a plot of land about the size of the land behind the church here, the land that people use for growing things. But he couldn't grow anything. He planted Arabica coffee cherry trees and they withered and died. He pulled out the cherry trees. He planted banana trees and they withered. He pulled out the banana trees and he planted sugarcane. It didn't grow, it withered and died. He pulled out the sugarcane and planted citrus fruit. They withered and died the lemon and the lime trees. In the end, he got a little glass and he filled it with the soil from his land and he took it to the local pharmacist and he said, I wonder if you can tell me what's wrong with my land. And the pharmacist, well, I, that's not my expertise really, but I'll, I'll try and tell you if something's poisoning your land. Really, before the man got home, the chemist was around and he said it's quite remarkable there's nothing poisoning your soil but there's very little soil there 
It's almost solid bauxite. Bauxite is the stuff that we get aluminium from. And this man suddenly became terribly rich when he stopped trying to grow things and started to mine out the bauxite. I see plenty of God's people are like that. They, they open their Bibles and nothing really grows because God hasn't opened their ears to find the rich spiritual bauxite that is just below the printed word there. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. What David is saying there is, my heart, my actions, my will, my thoughts is overlaid with the reality, the treasure of God's word. Last psalm we're going to look at, Psalm 45 and verse 1. My heart is stirred by a noble theme. As I recite my verses for the king, my tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. Again, the Hebrew is powerful. My heart, says the Hebrew, bubbles up. My heart effervesces as I recite my compositions concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Can you see what's happening? David's heart, his thought, his actions, his will, is bubbling up, effervescing, uh, in the work that he's doing for God, writing psalms. So the sad picture of a man in spiritual decline, Saul, the delightful picture of a man in spiritual ascendancy, David. Let me remind you what we're looking at here. We're looking at these two men, Saul and David. They've been given a task to do. They've been given a ministry, slightly unusual ministry, not going to be offered to us. Their ministries are going to, to be kings. I wonder about the ministry that God has given you, the welcome team, the PCC, children's work, with the, the music, prayer, giving, hospitality, house groups. How are you doing it? So here's my third heading, a challenging picture for the choices we must make. Are you going to be like Saul or are you going to be like David? These first two kings of Israel, we see it in their reaction to God's will, their reaction to human weaknesses. Saul never really overcame his ego problem enough to serve God wholeheartedly. While David on the other hand, desired a heart-to-heart, day-by-day relationship with his heavenly Father. And even when he fell headlong into sin, his tender conscience brought him back quickly, repentance and restoration to God. Let me just remind you what we're looking at here. End of verse 7. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We've seen that's not really referring to our emotions. Yes, we're to love the Lord our God with all all our heart, all our mind, all our soul and all our strength. That's a different matter. What he's talking about here 
is our commitment. It's not really about belief. Saul believed in God. The devil believes in God. This is talking about commitment. Are you a Christian? Well, that's marvelous. You've been converted. God has changed your heart. Are you a Christian? You've been spirit-filled. This experience that God gave men and women for a ministry in the Old Testament, just one or two men and women, since the day of Pentecost, is the experience of every believer. You've been spirit-filled. At the very least, that means that you can begin to live a holy life and you, you can begin to serve God with power in whatever ministry has called you to. Do you know the writings of R.T. Candle, who was the Minister of Westminster Chapel. I've heard him speak on a pigeon religion. It's one of his favorite themes when he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The picture of the Holy Spirit is the dove, and he talks about that, and he talks about pigeons. There's nothing different anatomically between a, a dove and a pigeon. They are exactly the same. Perhaps a pigeon is just a little bit bigger. Anatomically they are the same, but their behavior is totally different. And R.T. Kendall uses this phrase, pigeon religion, to talk about those who abuse the teaching of the Holy Spirit or try to live a, a Christian life without the powerful working of the Spirit. You're a Christian. You've been converted. Your mind has been changed. Are you a Christian? You've been Spirit-filled by God, not only for holiness, but to serve Him while you have time in this world. What do you choose? The religion of the dove, the Holy Spirit, or is it for you a pigeon religion? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is so powerfully clear about the things that we are, should believe and do. Thank you that you have equipped us for holiness and for ministries in the way that we can serve you and we pray especially as we have our half yearly church meeting that you would lead us to ministries where we can serve you in power we ask it for Jesus name Amen